I do pray that uh, you would help your church arise. Not independently, not on our own, not advancing our own agenda, not shining our own light, but help us as your people to walk in the light as you are in the light and to shine the light of Christ into the world. It's your light, not ours. And so when we arise and shine, we're shining and seeking to shine the light of the glorious gospel of Christ. May that light permeate our hearts. May that light have its way in our lives. May that light transform us from the inside out. And may we be, as Jesus calls us to be in the Sermon on the Mount, may we be a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. That light that is shining the glory of God into this world and pointing to Jesus. And Lord, as we look deeper today into the things that are relevant to culture, as we seek to see Jesus in culture and we understand the reason why you came to engage culture, and that is to point people to the kingdom, to point people to the truth, to, to help them to understand that they can have peace with God that comes only one way. It comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So God, I pray this morning as we look into your word, I pray that you would shine your light into the dark places. May your word provide clarity. May your word provide instruction. May your word provide help for us as we seek to live your way and to engage culture the way that Jesus did. We pray in your name, amen. Well, we're in 1 Peter chapter 2. Been making our way through this letter, kind of taking it piece by piece, kind of seeing how, how does this letter affect us personally? We've been looking at this first couple of chapters, and, and Peter has been dealing with doctrine. He's been, he wants to acquaint us with the knowledge of God, because in order for us to live God's way, we have to know God. In order for us to please God, we have to, we have to know what God says, and so Peter begins just the, the same way the Apostle Paul always did in his letters, to, to establish for his readers doctrine and theology. By the way, doctrine and theology is not something for us to run away from. It's not something for us to hide away from. It's, it's not for the spiritually elite. It's not for the people who've arrived. It's not for those who would seek to have some sort of, of academic prowess or scholarship in the Christian life. The doctrine that is in the word of God is for you. And you cannot engage this world God's way without sound doctrine, without theology. But theology is never independent of practical application. We can't just have a head knowledge without applying it to our heart and applying it to our life. It's meant to do what we saw at the very beginning of 1 Peter, that we've been called to sanctification by the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. O obedience, which is essentially just aligning our hearts to doctrine. It's, it's applying doctrine and theology in the, 
the day-to-day living that you have. And here we are in this letter of 1 Peter, and now bridging the gap in, from theology and now moving our way into application. We're going to be seeing that in the coming weeks, how Peter wants to make specific application. Chapter 2, verse 13, he says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Now, that's practical. Theology has, has located a practice for the people. In chapter 2, verse 18, he'll, he'll build on this and he'll say, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the harsh. In chapter 3, verse 1, he's going to give some instruction to wives. Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the obedience of their wives. Now that's practical. Chapter 3, verse 7, now directs attention to husbands. Husbands, likewise, love your wives. Live with them uh, in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they're heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. He'll continue on through the end of this little letter to help bring about the, the practical outworking of theology that must intersect daily life. And so we're going to take a, a brief pulling back from First Peter so we can apply the truths we've been learning from this letter in a really practical, tangible way. And to be quite honest with you, I am scared to death, okay? I'm just going to give that confession to you right at the very beginning. Because the, the subject that we're going to be talking about is, is controversial in nature. And, and I don't know where you might uh, stand on these issues, but I, but I think the Word of God gives clear instruction. It gives help to us to inform our hearts, to help us know how theology intersects everyday life. And this is not just a tangential issue. This is not just a superficial issue. It's not just something on the fringe. This is something that's coming to a neighborhood near you. Now, maybe even in your walking around your neighborhood, you you might see some signs that look a little like this. We believe black lives matter. No human is illegal. Love is love. Women's rights are human rights. Science is real. Water is life. Injustice is anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Have you seen those signs? You're going to see this in your neighborhoods. You're going to hear this in the media. You're going to be intersecting this in your workplace, maybe even some some special classes to help make sure that you're addressing these issues the right way. You're going to be seeing this on social media. Everywhere you live, this is going to be in your face. How do we, as God's people, engage this issue in a way that is reflective of truth and grace? How do we walk in the steps of Jesus, who loved people? How do we walk in the steps of Jesus, who engaged people who were oppressed, people who were outcasts, people who were discredited and and thrown to the edges of society. Jesus, who was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. How do we engage culture the way Jesus did? How do we live with a posture of truth and grace? It's easy to be marked by truth. It's 
not so easy to be marked by truth and grace. I believe that we often see these kinds of things show up in culture that identify areas where the church has failed. And so it's important for us as we're engaging culture, as we're called to be lights in this world to understand what does the Bible have to say. We can't turn a blind eye. We can't be ignorant or indifferent to the subject. We need to press in. This is important for us to understand. So I want to just establish for us four reasons why I think this is a study that's important for us. Why, why go there? <laughs> why raise the issue? Why press into conflict? Why would you do this, Andrew? Well, there are four important reasons why we need this study. First is we have been called to stand. We have been called to stand. 1 Peter chapter 2, 11 and 12. This is where we ended our time last week. I just want to remind you of this. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And we said, because of that verse, that there are anti-soul forces that are seeking to demolish your spirituality. There are forces in this world who want to destroy you and bring you down. And when it's talking about the soul, it's not just talking about the immaterial parts of you. It's talking about the, the whole person. Our world, our culture, its philosophies, and our adversary, the devil, wants to devour you. He is hostile against you. There is no neutral territory. There is no place that is safe. Be aware. Be alert. You are at war whether you are recognizing it or not. Because your citizenship is in heaven, there is a united force that seeks to demolish the foundations of your faith. You can't be passive. You can't be indifferent. You can't be comfortable or complacent. You must be alert, on guard, aware. So how do we do this? How, how, do, we, how do we begin to recognize uh, our engagement in this war. What are we supposed to do? What are the instructions for this? Well, Paul gives some in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 14. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able, here it is, to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now that should sound familiar. Paul is also identifying these anti-soul forces that are against you and it's coming from the adversary, the devil, who wants to, to demolish you. His schemes, his tactics, his strategies to bring you down. Verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, here's the instruction. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. We are called as God's people to stand. 
You are called not to press in, not to attack, not to engage, but you're called to hold your ground. You're called to stand and form the battle lines, to understand where the truth is and to stand for God's truth. Stand against the philosophies of this world. You do that, as we're going to continue to look at, by, by putting on the armor. God has not left you unequipped. He's not, he's not said, well, you've got to stand, but you've got to figure out how to do this on your own. Do this with your own strength. No, we have divine power that comes through God. From, through his word, he has equipped you to stand. Now, so often as believers, we're not where the battle is. So often as believers, we find ourselves continuing to disengage. Uh, the, the, the battle lines of truth have been drawn. Our enemy seeks to, to take over the battlegrounds, and we find as a church, we keep stepping back, keep finding the places that are safe. <laughs> and let me tell you, I find that tendency in my own heart. It is much easier for us just to keep moving, go to chapter 2, verse 13, than it is for me to press in to something really relevant today for us as a church. But we're called to stand where the war is raging, understand the truth, stick to the battle lines, and be like Jesus in confronting truth with truth and grace, or confronting error with truth and grace. The study will be an expansion of our time in 1 Peter. It it will help to fill out for us and and go a little deeper as it relates to to applying doctrine to practical life, to filling out those details and dealing with the hard things rather than just glossing over them. So we have been called to stand. We've also been called to sound doctrine, to to adhere and embrace sound sound doctrine. This is the mission of the church, but it's, it's the mission of, of, of your pastors and leaders to, to help build out sound doctrine for you. Paul, in writing to Titus in Titus chapter 1, gives some qualifications for elders and pastors. And, and after those qualifications are listed, he, he wants Titus to understand what is the point, what is the purpose, what is the main mission that pastors and leaders are, are supposed to do. Here it is. Titus 1.9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Why? So that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. It is not an easy life as a pastor. Who wants to have the job of contradicting and refuting error <laughs> of of coming alongside those who, who would seek to contradict, contradict the truth and to help lead them in a sometimes very difficult way to hard things that they're not ready, ready to accept. And, and so as we walk through this, please pray for me. There are going to be some things that I will say that will absolutely bring offense and it's not intended. My desire is to lead you to truth, to to come alongside, kind of do what what Peter says in in chapter 2, verse 11. I I beg you as sojourners and and aliens, I I, I plead with you as as beloved friends. That's what we saw last week. I want to come alongside. I I want you to know that, that you're not in this alone. My heart and my desire is to lead you to truth. 
Paul tells the same to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 to 7. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may, here it is, explosive words, confrontational words, charge certain people not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. That is not an easy job. That requires some confrontation. That, that requires a little bit of, of, of conflict at times. But, but here, notice, don't miss the heart behind the apostle Paul in giving this instruction. It's not just that truth matters, something else matters. Verse five, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. I cannot love you unless I call you to truth. I cannot love you faithfully unless there are times where I confront you on things that are out of step in your life. Because for me to love you, I'm looking at the end game. For me to love you, I care about eternity. I care about future grace for you. I care about you and your time and relationship with God and not putting anything in the way that's going to hinder or disrupt that intimacy that you can enjoy with God. If I care about you enough, I'm gonna be willing to set aside temporary happiness and comfort in our relationship where things are happy and maybe things are conflict-free. I'm not thinking about the short game, I'm thinking about the long game. I care about your relationship with God, not necessarily your relationship with me. If I love you enough, I'm gonna be willing to press in. And so, here we are. We are those who are hanging on to sound doctrine, and we are those who, who seek to call the rest of, of our family, our spiritual family, into those things, spiritual, sound doctrine. Third, we've been called to stability. This is an amazing part about the Christian life, by the way. This is amazing that you don't have to be wishy-washy in your faith, that you can be settled you can be secure, that you can be confident about the things you believe. You don't have to be washed back and forth as we find in Ephesians chapter four, verses 12 to 14. That God has given us his word. He's given us the gift of pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry as we find in verses 11 and 12. And then verse 13 says, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. That's the end game, to know Jesus, to know doctrine, to know theology, anchored in the truth. And here's what happens in verse 14. Here's where it all leads. This is, this is an incredible gift to us from God that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. This world wants to have you. This world wants to destroy you. This world's anti-soul forces are after you. But you can be settled, you can be secure. If you know the word of God, you don't have to be tossed around. You don't have to succumb to the deceitful plottings and trickery of men. You don't have to buy into the philosophies of this world. You can know 
without a shadow of a doubt what the truth is, and you can be secure in the truth. What a gift from God. We can, as God's people, live in stability. Fourth, we have been called to wisdom. We've been called to wisdom. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Timothy is writing, or excuse me, Paul is writing to Timothy, his son in the faith. He, he wants to raise his awareness. He, he wants to open the door for, for wisdom. Be aware of the signs of the times, Timothy. The Spirit, it says, expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the, inserit, the insincerity of liars whose conscience are seared. You see any of that happening today? You see in uh, people who are, who are having itching ears and accumulating teachers for themselves? Are you seeing those who, who are, are, are trying to find and pursue doctrine that, that, that suits their fancy? Be aware, you're in the last times. First Peter, excuse me, First Timothy chapter four, verses one and two, if we just back up, actually, do we just do that one? Yes, go to three and four, sorry, you, you got it. For the time is coming, it says, when people will not endure sound teaching. They have itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit, to suit their passions. And turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. myths. This is the danger. Be aware. This is where things lead. And this is an anti-soul force that will destroy you as you buy in to earthly philosophies and you succumb to the pressures of human wisdom. And maybe you'll ask, how do we detect the difference? How, how, how can we begin to identify the counterfeit? Now, my mother-in-law used to work at a bank. And uh, in working at the bank, the, the owner of that bank did not give, or excuse me, the owner of the bank gave each of the tellers a $100 bill, a true, authentic $100 bill. He said, study it, learn it, know, know all the details of that bill because if you encounter a counterfeit, you'll know it because you understand is not the same as the real thing. We don't have to study all the counterfeits to recognize the truth versus the error. There are certain things that, that, that help us understand uh, what is counterfeit and what is real. I would encourage you, please open up to James chapter, chapter three. I want you to see this for yourself because I want you to be able to underline some of these words for yourself, identify what is the evidence of what is true wisdom and what is earthly wisdom. Here's what it says, James 3, 13 to 17. Who is wise and understanding among you? All of us want to be wise, right? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. James, the brother of Jesus, wants you to understand there are very significant and clear ways to identify true wisdom from earthly wisdom. Here he goes, verse 14. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. 
For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Back up to that first slide, please. Thank you. Help me. What are the marks of earthly wisdom? This is an interactive time. What, what, are, what are the marks of earthly wisdom? What do you see? Pride. Pride. Good. What else do you see? What's that? Envy. Perfect. What else do you see? Discord. Okay. You can identify earthly wisdom when it aims for selfish purposes. You can identify earthly wisdom when it seeks to create conflict and disunity. You can identify earthly wisdom when it leads you to frustration, when it leads you to blame others for your problem. You can, you can uh, believe that earthly wisdom comes as the product of earthly wisdom leads you to jealousy, wanting what other people have, not being satisfied with what God has given to you. And, and how, how is it described there in verse 15? How is that wisdom described? What do you see? It is demonic. It is unspiritual. It's earthly. Talk about some polarizing statements, right? It can't get any more clear. This is demonic. This is not neutral. There can be no intersection points with the philosophies of this world. That there's no common ground. They are at war with you. They want to destroy you. You cannot buy in in any way. They have nothing to offer us. Except they may provide opportunities for us to see what does the Bible say about these things? How does it create some awareness? How do I recognize where the church has failed so that I can, so I can answer some of these questions? But, but make no mistake, the wisdom that is from this world is demonic. But the wisdom from above is different. Now we can go to the next slide, thank you. The wisdom from above is pure and peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Now that, that is beautiful picture of the fruit of godly wisdom. The, the picture is of something that is pure in that it's innocent, it's holy, it's godly, it's peaceable in that it's free from worry. It creates a sense of satisfaction and, and uh, I am comfortable in this life. I'm, I'm satisfied with, with all that God has given to me. I don't need any more. There's no jealousy in my heart. It's gentle. It's open to reason, full of mercy, impartial, sincere. Doesn't wear a mask. And then in verse 18, it says, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. It pursues unity. That's what the Spirit does. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Spiritual wisdom, godly wisdom, divine 
wisdom seeks peace. It seeks unity, the, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's what we find in Ephesians chapter 4. That's the work of the Spirit. That's what he does. He, he strives for peace. Now, he doesn't always create peace because we, uh, we can understand that there, there's uh, sin in this world and there's fracture going on. So peace doesn't always happen, but he's calling us to peace that comes with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It all comes one way. That's how you know the quality and character of wisdom. Wisdom that is demonic or wisdom that's from above. Does it pursue peace or conflict? Is it gentle or hostile? Is it impartial or prejudice? Is it content or jealous? Is it full of mercy or full of condemnation? Any system that bears the fruit or evidence of a carnal wisdom is demonic in nature. Make no mistake. There is no common ground. So, where do we begin? How do we engage this subject? How do we begin to, to find the truth from the, from the word that, that will help to, to, to help us uh, orient ourselves into this life? How do we engage this world in a way that is godly? Well, we need to start with the Bible. We start with the word of God. And by the way, the, the doctrine of this is called bibliology. We have to begin with the word of God. We have to begin with the truth itself, and when we know the truth, the truth will set us free, right? The truth will, will liberate us and, and help to anchor us and, and bring to the confidence that we have of being able to call others to the same truth. There are three things I just want to draw out briefly about the word of God that we have as believers that will encourage us as we begin to make our way through this study. I want you to just call your attention to the first, the word of God is authoritative. The word of God is authoritative. Now, why is that important? Well, it's because it's not based on experience. It's not ambiguous. It's not subjective. There is a singular, narrow, and precise meaning. And it's timeless. It's unchanging it's a standard that has been the bedrock of the church since its inception in Acts chapter 2. Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing, how? By the word of God. And you and I have been born through the imperishable seed of the word of God. We saw that in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. The word of God is what got things started for you. The word of God is what's going to keep things going for you. It's going to be the sanctifying agent of God in your life. It's going to be the stabilizing agent of God in your life, and it's the authoritative agent in your life. The word of God is supreme for you and me in that it is what calls us to the attention that God has, that God has asked us to follow. Jesus states his purpose when he's standing before Pilate. John chapter 18, this is interesting. Maybe you have known this, maybe not. But, but Jesus is answering questions uh, to Pilate before he's about to be crucified. Jesus answers him and says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. 
that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Now, that should sound familiar. <laughs> We've been talking about your aliens, your strangers, your exiles. And so, so Jesus, in reinforcing that point, says, hey, I'm not living for this life. I'm not living for this world. I am living, I'm a citizen of heaven. So why are you here, Jesus? The next verse is the question from Pilate. Pilate says to him, so you're a king? Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to what? What do you think? For this purpose I have come, and for this purpose I've come into the world to save sinners. Well, that, that could be good. We know that Jesus came to save sinners, right? And we know that Jesus came to serve and not to be served. But here's the answer. The answer is, thank you. Gave away the answer before I was ready. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. That was Jesus' mission, the truth, to give you the answers that you need to have a life with God. And right here in this moment, the question for, for everyone in this room, the, the only question that really matters is, do you have the truth that leads you to God? Do you know how to embrace Jesus as your Savior? Have you ever come to the place where you recognize your sin and you've come into relationship with him by confessing your sin, repenting, turning away from it, turning to God, and realizing that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life. It doesn't happen by your works, doesn't happen through your merit, doesn't happen by being a good person, showing up on Sunday, being kind to your neighbors, being a good mom or a dad, being a good husband or wife, being a good employee, none of those things really matter. What matters is, do you know the truth? And has that truth led you to believe in Jesus? That's all that matters. Because here's why it's important. At the end of Jesus' public ministry in John chapter 12, verses 46 and 48, we find something about the authoritative nature of the truth. He says, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Now that's a really controversial statement. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Jesus was born. For this reason I was born, and for this purpose I came to the world so that you might know the truth, the truth that has authority to judge you on the last day. Do you know the truth? Have you anchored your heart in the truth of God's word? And are you following it, believing it, loving it? The word of God is authoritative. The word of God is also sufficient. The word of God is sufficient. This is, this is so amazing that God has given to us the word of God that, that addresses every part of life. Second Peter chapter one, verses three to four say this. It says, his divine power, look what he's given to you. His divine power has granted to you 
Just a couple things that pertain to life and godliness. No. Well, most things that pertain to life and godliness. No. All things without exception that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by, or excuse me, called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. God has given to you the complete and sufficient word of God and the power of his spirit so that you can accomplish everything in this life he's called you to accomplish. You're not missing anything. It's not incomplete. You're not lacking for help. God has given to you all that you need. It addresses every aspect of life. Every dimension is covered. Every decision is informed. Every action is empowered. Your work life, your family life, your home life, your public life, your neighboring, driving to the store, working on your car, mowing your grass, Every part of life, every dimension is covered. God's word is sufficient. It covers it all. Nothing's left out. Everything is meant to lead you to God, to lead you to discovery of relationship with him, to lead you to the glory of God. The Bible is sufficient. Not just one source of truth among many, It's the only source that matters. It's the only voice you need to hear. And so while I am limited as a pastor, I'm limited by my experience, I'm limited by my knowledge, I'm limited by my exposure, I'm limited by the time I've had to study this subject, I'm limited because I haven't looked at all the YouTube channels, I haven't read all the books, But what I can tell you is as as we anchor our hearts in the sufficient word, we can address all of life that matters. We don't need any other truth sources. We just need one. We need the scripture. We don't have to study all the nuances. We just have to show ourselves approved to God. That is the one call, the one standard you've been called to. 1 Timothy excuse me, 2 Timothy 2.15, says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God. A workman, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You have one metric in in this life. One standard that matters. One person to please, to please God by knowing and studying the word of God, applying it to your heart, and living it through. The word of God is sufficient. Finally, the word of God is clear. The word of God is clear. We call that perspicuity. It's a fancy word for for clarity. It's spoken in a language that is meant to be understood. By the way, remember, who originated language? It wasn't invented by Adam and Eve. God is the originator of language. He intended for that language to be clear. And from the very beginning of creation, God spoke in clear terms and expected the people to answer and to respond in a clear way. Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. This is the instruction of God to Adam in the garden. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, 
But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Is that clear? Is there any hidden meaning there? Is God mixing words with that command? (laughs) Well, let me tell you. Satan, who is the roaring lion seeking to devour you, wants to attack at the very core and clarity of of the scripture, of the word of God. Notice what he says, how he responds in chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, here it is, has God really said, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? What does he do? Satan attacks the clarity and precision of words. Eve, in responding in verses 2 and 3, says this. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, but of the tree, excuse me, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. She understood. She understood the precision of the words. She understood the clarity of the words. There was no hidden meaning. And she and Adam were judged on the basis of their conformity to the precise and clear instruction that God had given. We could go to example after example. (laughs) I have pages of examples that I won't share with you for the sake of time. But God did the same thing for Noah. He said, build a boat. Build it this long, this high, this wide. In Noah, it says in Genesis chapter 6, 22, Noah did this, he did all that God commanded him to do. And he was judged on the basis of his conformity to the clear standard and instructions that God had given. To Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, uh, God says, go from your country to the land that I will show you. And what did Abraham do? It says that Abraham went out of Haran and he went to the promised land, to the land of Canaan, the, the land that God had instructed him to go. We see in chapter 15 that Abraham questions God by saying, oh Lord, what will you give me for I continue childless? Because in chapter 12, God had promised to make him a nation. And nations don't happen without children. And Abraham's like, I thought I understood. Where are the kids? And God says, don't worry. I'm going to make your descendants as expansive as the stars of the sky. Trust me. The words I said, you can take it to the bank. I would encourage you to do a study through the book of Exodus. You will find, God said, Moses did. God said, Moses did. God said, Moses did. And the one time that God said, and Moses did not, meant that Moses was not going in the promised land. God is clear. He uses precise language. So the word is sufficient. The word is authoritative. The word is clear. What a gift we have from the scripture. So as we submit ourselves under the word of God, we can begin to move forward in this study. But, uh, can I just encourage you to pray with me? Pray that God will help me as a teacher to be faithful and gentle and gracious, but bold and clear in how I share the truth. Pray that God would help you to be good listeners 
to be ready to hear, ready to submit to the scriptures, ready to follow the instructions that God has given. Um, we bought several books from Vodi Bakum. I would encourage you to read. Uh, I've got some up here, several more in my office. We paid $15 for these. If you want one, take one and just put $15 in the, in the offering box on the back wall. This is worth every minute of your time. It has been so helpful for me. Learning from uh, Vodi Bakum's experience, learning from the truth, from the word of God. My desire is to pursue peace. My desire is for us to be able to inform, instruct our families. My desire is that God can accomplish his purposes that we find in Ephesians chapter 2 where, where Jesus came to bring peace to those who did not have peace and to make the two one, meaning Jew and Gentile, those who couldn't have been more distant, more apart, more independent from one another. And God, through Jesus' work on the cross, brought them together. He broke down, it says, the middle wall of division between them. My desire is for us to enjoy the peace that God has called us to. Finally, I just want to dip our toes into this, and then we'll begin this discussion more next week and the weeks following, okay? Critical race theory, what in the world are we talking about? What is social justice? And this definition uh, is kind of heady, uh, kind of technical, and uh, you can find that definition at the source there, but it's also in Vodi Bakum's book. I'm not gonna read that because you won't understand it anyway. Maybe some of you will. Let me just try to summarize by going to the next de definition, okay? Critical race theory is the view that the law and the legal institutions are inherently racist and that race itself, instead of being biologically grounded and natural, is a socially constructed concept that is used by white people to further their economic and political interests at the expense of people of color. Meaning, if you're a white person, you're racist. And if you're a white person, all you care about is your own agenda. What you care about is advancing your own welfare. You, you, you care about making sure that your bank account is full at the expense of anyone who might stand in your way, especially those who are of color. And by the way, we agree. We agree that every white person that has ever walked the planet is inherently racist. We call that sin. And where the critical race theorists get it wrong is that it just doesn't apply to one group of people. <laughs> it, it applies to mankind across the board. We are all, in the heart of us, wicked and desperately evil. We're gonna look at that more next week. It's called total depravity. We're not as depraved as we could be, but we're depraved in every part of us. The way we think, the way we orient our affections, the things we want, the ways that we respond to others, the language that we use, apart from Christ, we are depraved. We have no hope apart from him. But where critical race theory gets it wrong is there is hope. It's not a hope that you find here. 
We're not aiming to, to make a heaven on earth. We're not looking for a utopia here. We're looking for what Christ seeks to do in terms of redeeming culture, making us a, as what uh, he says in, in chapter two, verse nine, he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Peter uses differentiating words. He uses words that often they would put, be put people into classes, in groups of people. But instead of putting them in groups of people, what, what, what Peter has done and what Jesus has accomplished is he's brought all these groups together in Christ. That's what we want. That's what we're aiming for. It happens one way. It happens through faith in Jesus. And it is the mission of God's people to pursue gospel ministry so that others can enjoy the benefits of the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross by making them both one, Jew and Gentile. Those who had the law and those who didn't. Those who were God's covenant people and those who were outsiders. Jesus, through faith in him, accomplished on the cross what nothing else can accomplish. That's what we're after in this study. Understanding and embracing that work and advocating that work of God to the world. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray for your help as we work through this study. It is a controversial subject. It is, it is a subject that can create lots of fracture. But God, I pray that you would help us as we look at your word. Help to bring us together. Help us to understand our responsibility as a church to pursue justice, to pursue um, helping the poor and oppressed, uh, seeking to, to unify the body of Christ, seeking to embrace your kingdom purposes. Help us to operate in the power of the Holy Spirit to pursue peace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming this morning. God bless you.